The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at ShadowsAtTheDoor.com Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, royals and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Love Triangle. There are some basic rules to life. That's obvious. But then there are different rules for different people. And currently, Emma was breaking some very, very important ones. Rule number one a teacher shouldn't sleep with students. Broken. Rule number two if you are in any kind of serious relationship, You have to remain faithful. Broken. Rule number three. If you ever break rule one or rule two, you better not get caught. Unbroken. So far. Thoughts of rules should not be running through her head. Not now. Not while Randy is inside of her. But they are. No matter how awesome the sex feels... And that's really the only reason the affair is still going on. Emma can't kick the lingering notion of how much wrong she is doing. I'm cheating on my fiancé with a student. It probably doesn't help that her fiancé, Charlie, is the jealous type either. Shit, how did this happen? The cause is not important. What is important is the effect. Paranoia grips Emma at the worst of times as she squeezes her fingers into Randy's back. She knows she can't get caught. She's got way too much to lose. Emma? Randy asks as his thrusting slows and finally stops. He's still inside Emma. Faces almost touching. Emma's never been good at masking her emotions, and Randy sees right through. Are you okay? What is it? Nothing, she says, forcing a smile. Just a little lost in my own thoughts. Not bad, huh? Randy frowns. Emma smacks him on the side and laughs. No, I guess I'm just thinking too much. This again? You got nothing to worry about. You know me. You know I'll keep quiet. It's fine. I know, but she begins, but he cuts her off with his cocky smile. And he says, as long as you give me an A, that is. Emma smacks him in the side again, flat palms smacking against his muscled flesh. And they both burst into teenage giggles. And the sex resumes. At least one of the two men I'm sleeping with isn't the jealous type. What am I doing? 
Emma constantly questions herself, but never comes up with a solid answer. She knows she likes Randy. He's cool and cute, and they share that crackle of electric attraction. But she's also in love with Charlie, and has been for a long time. Variety, she decides. She's not exactly bored with Charlie, but she's only been in a couple serious relationships and never really had any fun flinging around with guys for pure fun, pure pleasure, without the dependency or prospect of building a future. Emma is not that needy. This is something most men don't understand. Sure, occasionally a woman can be a psychotic catboiler, but in those cases, men are more clingy and needy than women. And in Charlie's case, jealous. But at this point, Charlie has every right to be, because he is correct. Emma thinks Charlie's jealousy is probably what drove her to stray in the first place, even though she loves him. So, she stumbled onto, or maybe seduced Randy, and enjoys the non-seriousness of the fun that they share together. But it needs to stop. Emma forces the guilt away, for now. The sex feels too good to keep running bad thoughts around like wet laundry in the dryer. She moans and grabs Randy's shoulders, stopping him. He gives her a look, and she gives him a big seductive smile and wrestles him around and winds up on top of him, back arched, breasts perked, and fingers tangled in her own hair. Nice moves, he says, a slice of moonlight highlighting his dark features. Emma throws her head back, hair flying, and rides on him before going in for a kiss. He grabs her head, kisses her neck, and holds her close as they grind harder and harder against each other. This is the seventh time they've done this, and even though the sex is playfully passionate, it stops there. Emma and Randy have a quirky, mutually unspoken agreement that the passion stops at the sex. He releases her, and with his strong arms, he flips her over and enters her from behind. As always, she can feel his eyes boring into the tattoo on her back, a simple yet provocative equilateral triangle. Emma's favorite shape. And even though he can't see it, she smiles. An extra special assignment from his math professor. He is passing. He speeds up and sensing what's on the brink of happening, Emma starts the excessive moaning and dirty talk. Most girls do this when a guy is about to blow, whether she is or not. The moments leading up to the male climax becomes all about him, from both perspectives. Men are needy and are usually oblivious to even the worst acting if it gives them validation. Her words are nasty and sexy. He's got two big handfuls of her disheveled hair, ad hoc pigtails that he jerks as he finishes. Head raised, she screams. It feels amazing. She hasn't gotten off, but she knows it's her own fault, and she scolds herself for being so distracted the whole time. He crashes down next to her, both of them breathing hard, laughing, and staring at each other. Sometimes, Emma wonders just exactly how Randy feels about her. This needs to stop. Emma decides that this will be the last time. She prays she doesn't end up breaking Randy's heart. On top of the guilt, he's also got enough ammo to cut her in half. Jesus, he starts. That was amazing. Our best yet. He frowns. Wait, did you, um, you know? Laughing at how he approaches the subject, Emma answers. No, but that doesn't mean it wasn't fucking good. It's my own fault. I got paranoid. Yeah, that sucks. I'll go down on you. We can keep it even. I can smell burning rubber all the way up here. Don't even think about it. It's fine, really. Yeah, you're right. You're gross, he says with his cocky smile. Works every time. I really need to end this. I'm shaking. I need to move around. You stay right here. I'm going to bring you a present, Emma says. Walking out of the room naked, she can feel his eyes on her ass and tattoo. It's not often that the student lands the teacher. She takes the left out of the bedroom and heads to the kitchen keeping the lights off.
The tile freezes her feet as she pads to the kitchen. Full moonlight softly illuminates the room. She does a little shiver dance, feeling sexy and flooded with gleeful, just-got-fucked satisfaction. Half of Emma wonders why she doesn't feel more guilty. And the other half wonders if the taboo aspect of breaking so many rules increases the pleasure. It probably does. Over at the counter, Emma opens a drawer and grabs a large kitchen knife. She holds it up, watching it glint softly in the moonlight. The never-stopping math teacher in her studies the shape of the blade. A scalene triangle. A triangle with the measures of the sides and angles completely out of whack. Holding it close to her eyes, she struggles to look at her reflection. Even though I'm a cheater, I'm better than a cheater. This is the last time. The refrigerator air is even colder than the tile. Her nipples stiffen, and the liquid streaks on her thighs conduct a kind of cold electricity. Leaning in, she grabs two bottles of Corona and the half-lime wedge wrapped in cellophane. After uncapping the bottles, she uses the knife to split the remaining lime in half, and then mashes each wedge in that sweet spot so that it straddles the lip at the top of the bottleneck. She sucks the lime juice off one of her fingers. Drops of water collect on the sides of the bottles, making them cool and slippery, chilling her hands as she walks back to the bedroom. Close your eyes, Emma orders just before entering. And miss that front? No way. Now, or no surprise, mister. I doubt whatever you got is worth it. Shut him. She walks in and sets the bottles on the nightstand. Standing in front of them, she says, Open. His eyes open, and he stares up at her. First at her face, then quickly jumping to the rest. Your mouth, dork. Haven't you played this game before? So demanding, he says, opening his mouth. Eyes, she says, and they go shut. Emma sticks a lime juice-covered finger in his mouth, and he flinches a little at the sour sweetness. His eyes open again, and he looks confused as she hands him his beer. You are brilliant, he says, scooting over, making room. They pile some pillows against the wall so they can sit up. After clicking bottles, they both take a long drink. What time is it anyway? Emma asks, holding the bottle with one hand and searching the nightstand with the other. What are you looking for? Another condom? He grabs his phone, opens it, and the light splashes on his face just like the moonlight. And again, she's filled with that animal lust. He's beautiful, and I can't explain it. Can't fight it. Can't do much but give in to the reptilian brain of sex. Attraction isn't much of a choice. So funny. I'm looking for my phone to see what time it is. Where the hell is it? It's time to go again. I'm serious. Where is my fucking phone? Okay, okay, chill, Em. Let me call it. After he pushes the send button, it rings and starts to vibrate. It's somewhere on the bed. Emma rustles the sheets and blankets and pillows around looking. Finally, she sees the light and grabs it. Emma opens it up and says, Hello? Well, hello there, sexy, Randy says, his voice coming from both sides of her head. So mature. You answered it. He had a point. Randy slips an arm around her and she relaxes into him. The whole time, her brain is screaming, This is not okay. They drink their beers in comfortable silence, while Emma tries to think of a way to bring up the fact that they cannot continue to see each other. In an effort to avoid this turn in conversation, she distracts herself with her phone. And every single system in Emma's body stops. Blood stops pumping. Air goes stagnant in her lungs. Mouth and vagina race to go dry. She sees a scent call in the last 31 minutes. To Charlie. It lasted 17 minutes. She blinks. It's still there. She closes the phone and opens it again. Still there. I think I just broke rule three. Charlie is already on his way to Emma's house. To surprise her. He's close. He knows she's 
been a little distant lately, and he thinks that she misses him and she might be a little depressed. While he's on the way to surprise her, she calls him. He stares at the phone for one ring, two, three. He really doesn't want to spoil the surprise. Four. He loves the girl. He can't resist. He flips open the phone and he says, Hey, you. Instead of her honey voice saying, Hey, babe, I miss you. He hears silence. Then sounds. Voices he can't really make out. Music he can't quite hear. It sounds like she's at a party. Even before he knows what she's actually doing, he's jealous for the simple fact that she's having a good time without him. Then the voices change a little bit. They become clearer. He starts to make out the words. He hears heavy breathing and moaning that he associates with the dance floor at a party or bar. But next, he clearly hears, Fuck me harder. And, Yeah, right there. Don't stop. And it is clearly Emma's voice, his fiance, his love. Charlie is less than an hour away and listens closely against every instinct he has to the rest. It goes on for a long time. Anger and jealousy increase with every frantic moan and filthy word he hears. When the call goes dead, He's about 30 minutes away. He decides not to call her back. Jesus Christ, Emma says, staring at her phone and then glancing at the dumbfounded expression on Randy's face. That fucker is trying not to laugh. He looks at her with a strong smirk. Sips his beer and says, Is what just happened what I think just happened? He's not at all hiding the fact that he thinks this is hilarious. And why wouldn't he? He's anonymous. I'm the one whose ass is about to get deep fried. You've got to get out of here. Doesn't he live in Toledo? That's like two hours away, Randy counters. It doesn't matter. I need to think about this. Well, let me help you de-stress your mind, hot stuff, he grins. Emma's conflicting halves once again come into play. Half of her wants to shatter the Corona bottle on the top of his head. But sadly, the uncontrollable other half of her wants to fuck him again. And if he's right, it probably will help clear her mind. And even if Charlie is on his way, she knows he won't be here for a while. Plus, she's planned on ending this tonight anyway. Together, they can do it one last time. Relax, Emma, he says and pulls her close to him kissing both of her breasts, then mouth. This is my fucking fiancé, she shouts at him. This shit is not cool. I know, he says. Let's do this one more time, and then we'll figure it out. It was a cell phone call. He probably didn't even hear anything. Part of her thinks he is right. But that notion isn't enough to untwist her guts. This is not good. What kind of person gets horny at a time like this? What kind of person am I anyway? Emma remembers a time when she broke up with a serious boyfriend for no real reason. And before the breakup phone call ended, or her eyes dried, her vagina was dripping wet. Then she went out and fucked the stranger. It made no sense to her then. It doesn't now. Apparently, it's impossible to explain the wiring between brain, heart, logic, happiness, and sex organs. Shit just happens. Somehow, thinking about how much trouble she may be in and looking at Randy drinking that Corona with the water droplets running down the side of the bottle and not getting off earlier as Emma on fire and she tells herself that she's already caught, it doesn't really matter, and that if she's not caught, this was going to be the last night with Randy anyway. So they might as well fuck for the fences one more time. Randy smiles and slides in occasionally hit the sweet spot and that's all Emma needs doesn't make any sense but she comes hard this time almost immediately and it never entirely stops the irony hits her as she thinks last time I was paranoid for no tangible reason and I couldn't get off 
this time, I'm paranoid for a very good reason. I can get off real hard. It's like she subconsciously knows that Charlie is watching through her bedroom window. Charlie does watch through the window. His face is right up against the glass. In one hand, he holds a small knife. And in the other, he jerks his cock, drains it against the side of the house. He's never experienced any kind of voyeurism before. Something about watching his girlfriend getting fucked while holding a pocket knife gets him raging, sets him off. Jealousy is a potent aphrodisiac. It feels like Emma is putting on a show just for him. Too bad she doesn't know it. While he consciously knows she is cheating on him, right in his face, he reframes the experience into something that she does for his benefit. Like one of those live webcam streams on the internet. Half of him screams, smash through the window and kill the cheating bitch. But the stronger half of him argues in favor of playing this out. He is glad it is dark out. And there is that slat missing from her blinds. He watches. Emma and her golden boy are wrapped. Completely oblivious. Charlie wonders how they will react if he kicks in the front door. He doesn't have to kick it in. Emma left it unlocked. Charlie creeps in. Quiet. Sneaks into the kitchen. But doesn't open the refrigerator. Doesn't grab a Corona. Instead, he grabs the biggest kitchen knife from the block. Doesn't use it to cut a lime. He stalks to Emma's bedroom door. Even though it's only a couple minutes later, he gets hard all over again. He's never thought much about a threesome with another guy before. But then he thinks about how the knife feels in his hand, and he gets harder. He listens. They have no idea... He's inside the house with them. Randy and Emma get loud and come at the same time. Droplets of his sweat land on her face and Emma can't decide if it's endearing or disgusting. So they lay on the bed, sharing a pillow, sharing a blanket, sharing post-ecstasy, sharing everything but love. Arms and legs still tangled, breathing, drifting back to life trying to muster the courage to face the inevitable truth that's looming in the background like a cinder block knockout punch. It's not love, but it's something strong enough to make this difficult. So, what happens next, miss? You get out of my bed and I try to figure out what to do. You probably didn't even hear anything. I really don't think you have anything to worry about. Oh yeah, nothing. Did you hear any of those things that were coming out of my mouth? I just really hope he didn't hear them. I really think you're overreacting. You've got to go. I need to think. You're great, but this is the last time. Fuck. I got to take care of this. It's okay, Emma, Randy says. Just know that on my end, you've got nothing to worry about. Thank you, she says and kisses him hard one last time. This should never have happened, but it did, and it was good, but it has to stop. But no, it's been good. Real good. Randy is getting dressed. Yeah, he agrees. For a lot of reasons. Thank you too, Miss Emma, and good luck with Chester. Charlie, she corrects, a fleeting fraction of doubt in her voice and eyes. She recovers. Before you leave, prove to me that you've learned something from me. Tell me about triangles. Are you serious? She nods and looks at him stone-faced. Well, he says, you've got a sexy one on your back. Her eyes shoot poison into his. Okay, okay, he says. Well, there is equilateral, where all sides and angles are equal. It's a lot like the love a family has for itself. The parents and the children all love each other equally. That's one, Emma confirms, looking at him and beginning to dislike and resist him and his charm more and more by the second. But she knows the anger is unjustified, and she's more upset with herself for biting than at him for tossing the bait. What else? Really? 
he asks. Then there is isosceles. This is where the two equal sides extend from a shorter base. I guess you could say that your pussy is the tip of an isosceles triangle. One of the best triangles I've ever known. And what is the last one? Emma fights a smile and tries to ask coldly. A scalene triangle. This is when Charlie kicks the door in. Randy and Emma freeze. Charlie gives both their eyes a good two seconds before his eyes move up and down her naked body. A scalene triangle is a little like this, Charlie says. He's holding a kitchen knife, a big one. He's naked. He's hard. Randy has his socks on. Emma is naked, watching them both. Charlie? She starts surprised, but he cuts her off. Shut up. Let's talk about triangles. He points the knife first at Emma, then at Randy. Looks like we've got quite a triangle here. Look at this knife, he says. It's so sharp, and it comes to this point. But look at this base, and the length and angles are all different. I guess you could call this, Charlie continues, shooting a quick glance at the two of them, then putting the point right in Randy's face. A serrated stainless steel scalene triangle. Randy trembles, but answers. Yeah, all the angles and lengths are different, right? Exactly, Charlie says, poking the knife closer to Randy's face. Let's see how smart you are. A scalene triangle is pretty hard to spot or explain. You've got seven seconds. Randy hiccups and hesitates, knife point to his throat. His mind is blank. He racks his brain and comes up with a single abstract example. Randy looks at the point of the knife. It's so close that his eyes go crossed. Pull that shit back for a second and I'll lay it out for you. Charlie brings the knife back a few inches. Three seconds, he says, voice unwavering, icy as a glacier. Okay, look, I'm going to give you an example, but you're not going to like it. Cool? Charlie moves the knife a couple of inches closer. Stop! Okay, it's like this. Here's your scaling triangle, Randy starts, looking between the three of them. You love Emma, right? I don't know anymore. Charlie says. How much do you love her? Randy asks. Charlie? Emma starts. Shut up! They both say at the same time. See, Charlie? There we go. For a second there, we were part of an isosceles. Shut up, asshole. I want to hear it. How much do you love her? Randy asks again. Before tonight? Before tonight? A lot. More than anything. That's a lot, Randy answers. Yeah, it was. You think Emma loves you that much? I thought so. I don't know anymore, Charlie says, seeing it begin to take shape. Emma makes a defeated, hot noise. She's crying now. Her attempts at words come out in nothing more than horrified sobs. Emma can't answer, so I'm not going to ask her yet, Randy says. Charlie takes a step toward him white-knuckling the knife. I'll tell you the truth. Just chill out with that fucking thing, Randy says. Charlie holds it steady, right at Randy's throat. I'll tell you the truth if you promise not to stick me in the throat. I promise, Charlie grins, lowers the knife, inches from Randy's guts. Charlie sticks it in his skin. A small blood droplet rolls. Okay, so you love her? Charlie asks, and even with a knife point stuck in his stomach, Randy doesn't waver. Cool, as said knife blade. I don't, Randy says, and she doesn't love me. The knife jabs a little deeper. He winces. I don't love her, but I'm attracted to her. We're attracted to each other. It's a weird angle that doesn't really make any sense. We get on together... We like each other, and we have great sex. The knife goes deeper. Easy, Randy says. I told you you weren't going to like it. 
thicker streams of blood run. But that's it. Not love. I just don't know what else to call it, but strong attraction. Charlie looks uncertain. He looks at Randy. Looks at Emma. So, Randy starts, Stop, Charlie commands. And they both look at the knife point, then lock eyes. How is it that I'm the fucking crazy guy here? Randy and Emma look at each other. Charlie isn't sure what he sees. He's having real trouble comprehending this whole situation. He slides the knife down Randy's skin. How long? Charlie asks. A couple months, Randy answers. Charlie stabs him with the knife. Not time, I mean how fucking long. Stop it, Emma wails. Charlie shakes his head, and a sad smile crosses his lips. I really can't believe this, Emma. Get on the bed, Charlie tells Randy, prodding him along with the knife. Randy resists. Get on the fucking bed, or I'll fucking gut you where you stand. Randy climbs on next to Emma. Since I'm not enough for you, let's make it worth it. This one time, you can have it. Your love and your attraction, Charlie says. Suck his dick. Emma is screeching to snap a vocal cord, sobbing, tears running down her cheek, hair in wet, sweaty tangles. She's staring at Randy, kneeling in front of him, his penis erect, inches from her mouth. Suck it, Charlie says, holding the knife up. I can't imagine it being that hard for you. She does. She sucks it on all fours, and then Charlie kneels behind her. Charlie, who has somehow become the bad guy, the good guy who comes to surprise his fiance, is now at the shit-eye of the hurricane. Licks his fingers and rubs her. She doesn't even need it. She's wet at both ends for her student boy toy and her loving fiance, a scalene love triangle. Knife still in hand, Charlie stares at Randy, looks him in the eye. It feels good for all of them. Really good. Charlie's heard stories about men who pay other men to have sex with their girlfriends or wives, but he never understood the appeal until tonight. He can't explain it, but something about holding the knife in his hand while he fucks his fiance while she's sucking a dick is overpowering. Celestial. He stares at Randy, who receives the blowjob in horrified ecstasy. Charlie moans, the knife to his neck. He doesn't need words. The gesture is enough. Charlie pushes into Emma harder and harder. Cries of terror or pleasure muffled by the choking sound she makes on Randy's dick. This is what you wanted, Charlie says. I'm sorry I wasn't enough for you. Charlie knows how to get Emma off from behind, his fingers snaking around down her belly, playing just above the slick spot. Works every time. Even easier and faster this time. She squirms, writhes, moans, and Charlie feels a sick satisfaction as he dictates her pleasure. As she begins to slither with orgasm, he begins to have his own, and he raises the knife high and watches Randy's gaping eyes scream in protest. A horrified noise squirts from Randy's mouth as Charlie brings the knife down, burying it to the hilt in the tattoo just above the base of Emma's spine. A triangle, severing a triangle, severing a triangle. It makes an awful sound. Charlie watches Randy's eyes shriek, not with pleasure, but with pain, as Emma's mouth clamps down on his dick. Charlie looks into Randy's eyes and then looks lower and smiles at the pain and blood, still entranced in his own orgasm. Emma falls flat, spine severed, dead or crippled, and Randy's eyes bulge as her jaw locks onto his cock. Flailing in pain, Randy takes a healthy swing and nails Charlie right in his smirking mouth. Blind with pleasure, Charlie doesn't see the punch coming. It hits and splits his lips. Charlie swings back, still slipping around inside of Emma, but Randy dodges, his jerky moments finishing the job, ripping his dick off between Emma's clenched teeth. The skin stretches and snaps and sprays chunks of blood. Paralyzed, Emma slowly chokes to death on the leftovers. Her other half 
full of Charlie's dying sperm. Charlie pulls out, stands up, and puts one foot on her ass and pulls the knife out, jiggling the sharp edge through the maze of her spine and tailbone. It makes a grinding sound. Pulling it out is like riding the rumble strip on the interstate. The sword from the stone. Dickless and bleeding, hopeless and pleading, Randy hunkers up against the headboard, one arm crossed over his face. His other searches for anything. He finds a Corona bottle on the nightstand. He swings with all he's got left, and the base of the bottle shatters against Charlie's head, leaving a jagged glass claw in Randy's fist. When the bottle bursts, Charlie sees stars, but doesn't lose focus on Randy. As he falls and sticks Randy deep in the neck with the knife, splitting the jugular vein. While bleeding out, with no motive but vengeance, Randy jabs Charlie's passed-out body with the broken bottle. He aims at his groin. He stabs and doesn't stop until he passes out. One of the stabs slits Charlie's femoral artery. There are standing pools of blood on the bed, red blood on the black satin sheets. The bodies, dead and dying, cling and murmur to each other, all fearing death. The murderous and treacherous actions are forgotten as they seek any shard of comfort, even between themselves. Later, rigor mortis sets into their entwining limbs. The blood coagulates, becomes a kind of glue, and bonds the three of them even tighter. The sickest type of fusion, Emma, Randy, and Charlie, fused by limb and blood into a shape that resembles a triangle, the kind that is the hardest to explain. Today's episode featured a story by Carrie G.S. Lip, a scalene love triangle. If you'd like more information on Carrie and his work, please visit his Amazon page and follow him on Twitter at Carrie Lip. That's Lip with two Ps. Artwork for today's show was created by John Towers. You can see more of John's work at www.stigmatastudios.com and interact with John on Twitter at Johnny Axe, and that's Axe with two X's, and Johnny without an H. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Jesse Saxon for a great story last week and to Jeanette Andromeda for the kick-ass art. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, shadowsatthedoor.com, sanitariummagazine.com, and rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Please share the terror, share the show, and help us grow. Tell one friend about the show. Aside from that, the best support you can give us to help us keep bringing you great authors every week is to rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, and tune in wherever you listen to the show. Ratings are free. They mean a lot to us. I hope you all enjoyed the newsletter and the awesome bonus story by Caitlin Marceau, an amazing artwork by Tricia Martin. You can sign up now and still access the story. Sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. And when you get there, you just scroll down to the bottom and you'll see on the left-hand side, get your Wicked Library card. Just put your details in there and you're signed up for the newsletter. If you haven't heard, we're going to be giving away posters for Neil Gaiman's The Price. It's an animated short film based on the story of the same name. And the Wicked Library will be featuring a dramatic reading of The Price by Neil Gaiman in August, along with short stories by yours truly and Nelson W. Piles. And now, Carrie G.S. Lip. So today, my guest is Carrie G.S. Lip, and Carrie's story today was fantastic. It's one of the, I think it's it's probably, I don't know, it's going to be a competition between you and, and Max between which one was the most twisted. <laughs> well, he's a good guy to compete with. I mean, yeah. I like him, and his story had me uh, gagging a couple times, especially <laughs> with that first big reveal there at the beginning. Oh, that yeah. Was, that was lovely. So. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I've had I, I've always had a hard time reading stories that 
um, not reading, like I could read them, but like reading out loud stories that involve sex. So for me, it was like, damn it, I'm fucking doing it. So, you know, I did Max's, I did yours. I mean, there's definitely a little bit of sex in those stories. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting combination because I, I was thinking about it and, and it's not uncommon for that to occur in horror stories. There's very visceral things that are brought to the surface. So sex is fair game. Murder is fair game. Why not put them both at the same time? Exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I reread the story just before I was going to talk to you. I'm reading it and like kind of squirming in my chair. Cause like, I don't, it's probably like a porn star, like watching their own porn, you know, like <laughs> it's just, you know, like this uncomfortable, like, did I really do this? You know, but I liked the story. It turned out great, but I don't, <laughs> it felt kind of funny reading it, but I'm, I'm glad that you did. So, well, from, from the contents of the story, it seems that like most of us math and maybe geometry terrifies you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not a numbers person. I'm a, you know, English degree. So like, yeah. I kind of don't get that stuff, but I do understand triangles a little bit. It just kind of came out with the story. I didn't have that planned and I guess that was sort of an excuse to take it as far as I did to make it, you know, have a little bit more of a a theme or whatever you want to call it. It's yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's really took what I thought was a great story and it took it to the next level because there's that thread that runs through and you have that recurring theme that it elevates it to another level. So not only can you enjoy it as a great horror story, but I think that there's some thematic stuff that's going on there. It's just very inter. It was very interesting to me. It's the reason I picked that one out of the other two submissions that you sent along. Well, I really appreciate that because kind of hardcore horror gets this bad name of you know, oh, it's just blood and sex for blood and sex sake and blah blah blah. Which I guess that stuff's out there, but for the most part, if you've got characters and some kind of plot, I think that it can all work. And you know, it's just telling a different story, but in you know the hardcore manner. And I like that. It's more interesting to me. As an author, how do you make that distinction between the two? I don't, I guess. I just go, and that's, I guess, other people's call to make. There's some people that are going to read this and say it's, you know, tortured porn or it's inappropriate or it's obscene or whatever. And, you know, that those people aren't really my target audience, I guess. Um, so I just kind of write what I want to write, and hopefully somebody likes it enough to, to publish it. And I've definitely failed you know, multiple times and gotten notes back on what to clean up and stuff like that. So it, it just really depends on who's reading it. You know, one editor might say this is terrible and the next one might say, I got to have this. This is fucking great. You know? Yeah. There's definitely the factor of finding your audience and being true to your own voice, which I think is is something that a lot of people worry too much about. Who's not going to like my story? Don't worry about who's not going to like your story. Worry about who's going to like your story. Absolutely. And, you know, worst case scenario, you know, it gets rejected from the market you send it to and you trunk it for a few months and you send it somewhere else or hold on to it for a collection or whatever. You'll be able to do something with your stuff. This was originally published in a collection called uh, DOA 2, which is sort of the hardest of the hard. You know, Jack Ketchum and Rath White, people like that were in the book. And so it was cool to to be in there next to them, but it's also, I had a place in mind to write. There was no limits, no boundaries on what you could do. So with all that kind of taken care of, I could just write whatever I wanted to and see where it felt. I know that you had made a a comment on Facebook about this story having some special significance to you. So I was going to ask you, what does this story mean to you or, or where does it come from inside you? Well, it's a funny story, I guess. Maybe it's not funny, but this was actually the second story that I wrote once I got serious about writing and I actually wrote a story before this. And then I wrote this one. I did them in the same sitting. It was about 16 hours, 10,000 words. That was kind of the fuse. And that, that really got me started. And then, you know, I started writing more and submitting more and started eating, you know, four or five months worth of rejections. And this was the second story that I sold. And it was to just this insane market. I've been reading Jack Ketchum for 10 years and now I'm in a book with him. You know, it's just like mind blowing to me. (laughs) That's Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's still like, I still didn't even believe it when I held the book in my hand. And it just, when I saw them announcing, you know, the different names in the, in the table of contents as they picked up stories, I was like, there's no fucking way that I've got a chance here. And then (laughs) lo and behold, here, here it comes. And the guys that run Bloodbound, you know, like, I got to meet them and they're really, really nice guys. So this kind of opened up a lot of doors for me and I probably got, I guess, lucky or got somewhere that I shouldn't have gotten. 
you wrote a story that well, you were passionate about, and that was obvious to me when I read it. I'm sure it was obvious to the editor that read it that picked you up for the anthology, and you got in there at the right time. You know, I mean, whenever I was talking to Max the other week, you know, he said that sometimes you get a lot of great stories, and it's just which one do you pick first? Right. Uh, so there's always a luck factor, I think, involved as well, but it had to be a good story if, if they picked it up, which it was. Well, and I had a, I would honestly say roughly about 50 hours invested in this. It's about 5,000 words. And I, I don't do that anymore. I kind of write, edit and submit now. But when I first started, I was just, you know, and now I go back and read it and I'm not happy with it. <laughs> There's a lot I would change, but um, you know, that's, you know, a bucket of cold water for some of the people that are starting. But yeah, my second big sale Say I had close to 50 hours invested in this story. Wow. I'm still happy with it. And I hear that again and again from people. And I, and I know that, you know, for myself as a writer that I don't, I don't sometimes care. I mean, sometimes I'll read something that I wrote five years ago and I'll go, you know what? That was actually pretty decent. Or more commonly, I'll read it and go, I figure there's a ton of things in here that I could fix. Right. But I mean, that's good because you're not the same writer anymore. I mean, that's, you're not the same guy that wrote that. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing, you know, that I, I see from new writers sometimes is having to have everything perfect before you submit. Obviously, you want to submit as clean a story as you can and as good a story as you can. But if you just don't let go of it, you're you're never going to be done with it and you're never going to be on to the next one. And I think that's a trap a lot of people fall into. They yeah. look for excuses not to submit or they're scared to submit. And um, they, they watch all these other people have sales and do good things and they just can't get past one story or those those five stories. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, and you'll hear authors that are published say that again and again, that, you know, you you just have to let it go at some point, because if you don't, it doesn't have its own life and it never will. That's why, uh, you know, deadlines are a great thing. You know, you got to make sure, you know, self-imposed, you can just kind of blow right past those. But if you want to have something out the door, you know, at midnight on the 31st or whatever it is, you know, you just you got to pull that trigger. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, it's one of the, the nice things about having a weekly podcast is that, you know, I definitely have to get it done every week. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a little, you know, like a gun to your head. Um, so it, it, it's nice thing to keep you motivated and yeah. keep you going. And then, you know, once your first sale comes and then your next one and your next one and the next thing you know, you know, you're you're making friends and you've got contacts and you're yeah. doing, you know, interviews like this and you know, it's, it's, it's a great feeling. It's a lot Absolutely. Of fun. Like writing is a very unique, you're not that far away from people, you know, like Stephen King is on, you know, his own kind of little Island, but you know, like people like Brian Keene and Jack Ketchum and you know, yeah. they're all, they're all accessible. You know, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Twitter. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to the Stanley hotel writers retreat. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so fucking excited for that. Um, I'm going with a buddy. He's a, a writer. Uh, his name is Rob Bully. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but uh, he's a real cool guy. And we're going to go and, you know, like these guys are going to go have beers with him and, and talk and it's going to be incredible. There's no other entertainment medium where you can do that. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned Ketchum. What other authors inspire you? What other authors do you enjoy to re- reading? But, uh, this, the Scaling Love Triangle is pretty much uh, just me totally aping my all-time favorite writer who is Richard Lehman. Um, you know, right down to the the sweat on the beer bottle. Like it's just totally like I didn't do it as good as he does it, but um, you know, he's he's probably my favorite and uh I like catch him a lot. I'm really into uh Jonathan Mayberry's Joe Ledger series. Okay. More recently, I just read uh it's an older book. Um it's called Exquisite Corpse by Poppy Z. Bright. I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but that was a really, really good read. Uh, I, I like the stuff that's set in reality. I'm not a huge fan of the supernatural, which is why I really gravitate towards Layman and Ketchum. Um, they, you know, dabble in supernatural every now and then. But um, for the most part, I'm much more interested in what a human being is capable of, you know, when faced with just terrible circumstances um, or having to fight to survive or something like that, as opposed to... Um, you know, an alien or whatever. But I also have a soft spot for giant monsters. So (laughs) I guess it is what it is. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think I understand what you're saying there. I mean, it's, it, there's like certain things where I enjoy watching or reading it, but for me to sit down and write it, I'm like, it's not the kind of thing that I would actually write, but I can, I can read it or, or watch it and still, you know, have a blast doing it. Right. Right. And, you know, I try and dabble in the giant monster stuff 
and like I guess that's the stuff that I, I still take seriously, but that becomes more funny to me. Like yeah. I've got a novella in limbo right now that I really hope I can find a publisher for called Attack of the Giant Penises about like a giant <laughs> penis monster. Um, you know, that kind of has its way with the world. Um, you know, what I, it's not really serious, but uh, oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, but, what if Jesus was a werewolf, man? That was hilarious. Exactly. Yeah, and um, I, the other story I've got coming out um, sometime in the next month or so is called Squid Fucked. Um, you know, and it's a, you know a giant squid and a, a porn star who are trying to redefine pornography by doing live action hentai, and uh, <laughs> you know it's just, um, yeah, but it's it's fun, you know. Yeah. Um, so I guess I like I like it all. Yeah, that's a long way to answer that question, <laughs> but I I sort of appreciate all the different aspects of horror, except like I'm not into like exorcisms and possessions. I don't really understand that, but whatever. Okay. (laughs) So what is the scariest story you you've ever read? I've ever read. Uh, I mean, Jack Ketchum's the girl next door immediately springs to mind. Mm. Um, uh, Stephen King's the long walk is one of my favorite stories. Um, Oh yeah. That's a great one. Yeah, and Rage, too. Like, I think he killed it as Richard Bachman. Um, yeah. Both of those, you know, like the, the school shooting story, bef- you know, 30 years before there was, you know, an epidemic of school shootings, yeah. I think is absolutely chilling. Um, so, and especially coming from someone like King, who, you know, is known for all this big epic scale kind of stuff, and he just, you know, can really screw with you inside of a high school classroom. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, so those are probably the big ones. I'm sure there's a million more. Oh, there's a book called good neighbors by Ryan David Yan. He's not really a horror writer. He's more of a crime writer. I don't know if you're familiar with the Kitty Genovese story where she was like stabbed in the courtyard of an apartment complex. Oh, yeah. Where, like, yeah. Um, it's like a fictionalized version of that. It's just, it's really scary. And you know, like all these people, that live around this courtyard, you know, have their own reasons for not going out to help her. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's a tough read. It's really, really creepy. Um, yeah. That's, that's a, that's a, a, a terrifying testament to part of what the worst part of humanity is, because we did that as part of, um, this was a couple of years ago when, uh, for, as a ninth story episode, we were talking about JFK in, in the sixties. And that was one of the topics that we covered. And it was just to me repugnant that this could happen and so many people did nothing. Right. Well, and you, you see it now even, you know, like every day or maybe every week you see a video on Facebook of people fighting and instead of helping or trying to break it up, people are filming it. Mm-hmm. And you give that a couple more weeks or the, the wrong person at the wrong time or the right weapon. And, you know, it's going to be a murder instead of just a fist fight at Walmart. You know what I mean? It's yeah, scary, scary stuff. Yeah, It was like the last episode of Seinfeld, you know. Do you remember that? The last episode of Seinfeld, the guy, I mean, it wasn't anything graphic like that, but they stood there and they filmed the guy getting carjacked. Yes. And then they all ended up in jail. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I remembered the, how it ended, but I didn't remember what set it all up. But yes, you're yeah. absolutely right. Um. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. How do you know that a story you wrote yourself is working? Because I know, like, when I think it's easy as a writer, or not, not a writer, but I think it's easy as a reader to, to sit down and read a story and go, that was a great story. I was entertained by it. But going back to what we talked a little bit about earlier about writers not knowing whether they're fantastic or whether they're terrible, how do you as a writer know whether a story you're working on is actually working and, and it's, it's going to, to meet the goals that you have for the story? That is an excellent question. Um, that is such a good question. I I don't know if I have a good answer for you. I guess the, the best answer I can give you is if something makes me laugh out loud or if something makes me cry, I know that I'm, I'm doing something right. Um, and it doesn't happen often. So I guess I'm submitting a lot of stuff that's not stellar. But you know, there's there's been stories where, you know, I type the last line and I'm just, you know, crying my eyes out. And um, yeah, it's only, I think, three stories that I can think of off the top of my head that have made me do that. Um, misery was one of them. Um, I don't know if you remember that one, um, from a few seasons ago, but you know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was an early one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was writing that in public actually. Cause I used to always write at bars and, uh, I was like typing the last like three paragraphs, like just tears running down my face. You know? Wow. <laughs> like, yeah. Freak. Um, but I think that that, that that can work and that can be a clue. Um, 
I, I guess the faster it flows, like I used to just sit down and write. And now I'm connected to, you know, hundreds of other writers and I'm watching submissions and I'm, you know, working on all this other stuff. And I get distracted much, much easier than I used to. But I think when something kind of grabs you and you sit down and you write with, you know, even a thousand words without checking your Facebook or without, you know, checking your phone or whatever, I, I think that you might be onto something. And I know that sounds like weak and pathetic, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> I'm trying to push past that. But, you know, um, when you get bit by something and you kind of forget that that's even there, you're probably onto something. Yeah, no, that, I think that's an excellent answer. So, hey, I appreciate you taking so much time with me, and I appreciate you letting me read your story on the Wicked Library. I appreciate the opportunity. I've done a few interviews before, but this is way more fun than just typing questions back in an email. Uh, I do this any time. This is a blast. Yeah. Well, I had a great time talking to you as well. I know we'll have to do it again. I'm sure that we'll have another story on the Wicked Library. So that'll give us an excuse to to get together and, and chat for, you know, if for not for any other reason. Um, where can folks find your work and interact with you? Um, I'm, I guess, fairly active on Facebook. This is funny. Um, I used to kind of be a, before I started writing, I was kind of a, a drunk psychopath on Facebook and I uh, would just post a lot of, you know, sort of incendiary things. And I've grown, but you know, I'm 31. So like, you know, this is back in my like, you know, early twenties, back yeah. when Facebook was fun. Um, <laughs> but you know, like my, my old roommates, like my best friend and tell me like, anytime I see you post more than once on Facebook, I just assume you're blackout drunk. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, that's hilarious. Um, but now, you know, I try and, you know, I post once a day or whatever. I'm Carrie Giant Squid Living. Add me as a friend. I'm, I'm pretty cool. I, uh, you know, I post about writing a lot. I like sports, you know, so I, I try and, you know, keep a variety. It's not just buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. I'm much more into, you know, interacting with people than, you know, trying to sell, you know, one more copy of an anthology. Um, although I'd like to do that and I still share that stuff, but it's not just, you know, constant spam of this, 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 this. Right. Um, and uh, so you can find me there. I have a, a fan page that I don't, I'm not really active with. Um, I barely keep up with my my personal page. So <laughs> that's uh, that's new world horror. But uh, that, that's probably going to go bye bye one of these days. So um, you search me on Google, find some bad reviews for me. There's a couple of good ones out there too. <laughs> uh, search me on Amazon. Uh, I'm there uh, right now. I'm in, I think it's like 30 some anthologies here and there, um, but I don't have any solo workout, which is going to change um, in the very near future. I've got uh, a, the, the story squid fucked is sort of like a Kindle single or uh, I don't know what you want to call it. I hate the word novelette, but I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so that's coming out um, hopefully sometime in the next couple of months. And then I don't have a time frame on the next one, uh, but I co-wrote a novel with a guy named Ken McGregor, who's a real good friend, a real good writer. Um, I'm going to try and steer him your way one of these days. And um, awesome. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, he can, he can share the spotlight on the wicked library, but uh, we've got a novel coming out um, through Sirens Call publications that I, I don't know exactly when yet. Um, and my best guess would be maybe early next year. Um, but it'll be nice to kind of have some solo stuff out there on yeah. top of, you know, all these anthologies and uh, working on a couple novels, um, but nothing, nothing signed yet. Nothing totally finished yet, but I've got a couple of nibbles. So hopefully those will play out in my favor and the publisher's favor and most importantly in the reader's favor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with, if any of that happens and you want me to get the word out for you, you know, certainly feel free to shoot me a message, let me know and, you know, I'll let the let the the folks know that there's something coming up that they can check out. I would greatly appreciate that, sir. Absolutely. Um, just uh, you know, I don't know if you want to keep this in or not, but uh, Nelson was always real, real good to me, and so was Maddie, and uh, they've just left it in fantastic hands. And I, I haven't listened to the most recent episode, but I've listened to every episode up to that point, and you're you're just you're you're killing it, man. Um, so keep up the great work, and they left it in real good hands. So I'm excited to see where it goes and what keeps happening. I like the newsletter. Um, I'm not trying to kiss too much ass here. <laughs> A Scalene Love Triangle by Carrie G.S. Lip. Copyright Carrie G.S. Lip. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was performed by Anthony Rousick of Novus. 
All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Hicks on Fabulous production. HicksonFabulous.com. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 607. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. Music, talk, stories. Society 13 Podcast Network. Kettle Whistle Radio. Music. The Wicked Library. Story. Mouthing off. Prog with Mr. Pink. Talk. The Ninth Story. Music. Red Horse Radio. Politics. Society 13. Where bad. I can't say that. Podcast. Society 13. We're not donkeys.